You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. There are only a few things you can count on in sports, but I'm convinced at this point one of them is that the Nets really are the desperate housewives of the NBA. We get drama every single day, and we can't stop watching. It's desperate Fitz. or real? Uh, oh, yeah, Real Housewives. You're right. Yeah, it's I mean, Desperate it, Housewives it, was a show, and Real Housewives are the yeah. drama. I mean, uh, it's ridiculous enough to be scripted, too, not just reality. But I think I think either works. You know what? I should have gone below deck. Below deck is really the favorite. <laughs> they call go. me That's Captain more, Sandy. I love it. more of your wheelhouse. Uh, yeah, no, I do love it. Uh, Spain and Fitz <laughs> on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM Channel 80. Uh, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, we're presented by Progressive Insurance. Sometimes I think they're more toddlers and TRs because everybody's acting like children. <laughs> but at some point, we have to listen to it because when KD speaks the NBA world stops to listen to what he has to say right and so uh, an interview dropped today where Kevin Durant uh, lashed out I guess I don't know the right way to say this he spoke out honestly about I don't his, say lashed out okay he, he spoke out honestly about the starting lineup and uh, he he came out and said look at our starting lineup Edmund Sumner Royce O'Neal Joe, Joe Harris Claxton and me it's not disrespect but what are you expecting from that group Durant said you expect us to win because I'm out there so if you're watching that from that lens you're expecting us to play well because number seven is out there it is true it is absolutely true everything he just said is true I also know that if I came into work today and I read an article in the news that said, Sarah Spain said, what do you expect from my radio show? Like, you listen to Jason Fitz and me. Are you surprised it's not professional? <laughs> I probably wouldn't love any of that. So I think KD yeah. out there being honest, but I don't know what that does for everybody that reads it. I'm not I'm not surprised that that's the pull quote here from a lengthy conversation with Chris Haynes, where I think a lot came out that was honest and introspective from KD. Um, in, in the case of this particular quote, I've got no problem with the honesty from athletes that we always demand and then criticize when it's the truth. Right. And somebody already tweeted me after I talked about the sun around the horn. Oh, the same for Kyrie. Well, no, if what you're spouting is anti-Semitic and non-factual, that's a very different situation. This is KD's opinion about the team, and it is one that we all share. And I would guarantee you that those guys that he listed feel the same way. It's a it's not a roster that should win NBA games. We have said, dating back to last year, whenever Kyrie was out, when Durant or when um, Harden was injured, we say this is not a team that plays good defense. This is not a team that's healthy. This is not a team that's really congealed but as long as Kevin Durant's out there you can't count out the nets how many times have you heard that he is repeating exactly what we all say and when he says it we want to jump on him I got no problem with it I I think he was honest about how much he wants to play basketball how he wants more accountability from coaches and front office and everybody else and I think when it came to Kyrie the expectation that he would publicly skewer him in order to get pats on the back as a good leader would be absolutely shooting themselves in the foot because as we know Kyrie is not a guy who will acquiesce because of pressure from others and so if Kevin Durant instead of having behind the scenes conversations with him which is what he said to Haynes he's been doing if he instead came out and publicly said Kyrie has to get vaccinated Kyrie has to say this or do this that's even more of a disaster than what we've already seen I think he's been in an untenable position surrounded by guys who have let him down and the best he could do every day is show up and then ask that they do more closeout drills so they're not complete frauds on defense uh, look I don't disagree with most of what you just said about the interview overall I think that's spot on but when it comes to 
what he said about his teammates. You're right. It is a pull quote. But at the end of the day, the, the issue I always had with the movie Liar, Liar is that, you know, just because you have to stand in front and you can never tell a lie doesn't mean you have to tell brutal, honest truth. There are ways to package anything. Any Anybody that's ever been in a relationship knows that even if your wife walks into the room in a dress that makes her look fat, you probably don't say, honey, that dress well, makes her look fat. let me ask you this, though. Like, when it comes to aggregating content, you're just going to look at that one line. Oh, I think and, and this was a lengthy conversation where he's trying to explain a whole bunch of stuff that includes how he's having fun grinding it out with young guys who are just getting started, that he's having fun leading some guys that might not be all-star candidates. So he's it's not that he came out and said, someone said, why are you losing? And he said, yeah, let me go ahead and throw my guys under the bus. Yeah, He's well, saying, we don't measure up on paper, but I'm trying to make them good. He said at the end, the legacy that I care about is helping young guys get better and what's going to happen to them years later in the league when I'm not even around. Outside of the context of what he's talking about, if he's pulling Aaron Rodgers and blaming all of his teammates, I get it, but that's not what he did here. Yeah, but even if, again, I'll go back to the same analogy I just used. If I say a million other things about how, you know what, that dress looks great and I really look, look like what you're going for, it's just you look a little fat in it. Like the, that's the part everybody's going to go to. That's just part of culture. That's part of life. And for somebody with KD that, that's well aware of how his words are, are used and the fact that he says it said, in another interview that he doesn't well, do anything else. what if I do else. look fat? Uh, yeah, well, there's certainly That's other ways to point, say That's my point, though. It. If these players know, you think Edmund Sumner thinks that he's that guy? You think Edmund Sumner wants to walk in and hear that, that that's what KD says, though? There's, you just mentioned he did everything else in the interview right, said everything else the right way. But this line is being pulled out by people because it, it does make you raise an eyebrow. Like, again, like if you and I are just real-life application, anybody that works with anybody, if you and I have a radio show and we say the best things about radio every single day. I just think day, it's different, Fitz. It's not, it's, radio is subjective, basketball in this way to me it's not subjective to look at that lineup and say that is not a lineup that should win in the nba the reason you expect it to is kevin durant yeah I, look that that part of it uh, i mean even if it's whether it's subjective or not at the end of the day he's got to go into the locker room with a bunch of people that he just came out and said what do you expect from that group the the words what are you expecting from that group he knows his he knows his words and the impact his words have. I have everything else you said about the interview. I don't disagree I with. Mean, I mean, he included himself though. It's not said, disrespect, but what and, are you expecting from and, this? And he group? said, "And me," as in, if that's our starting lineup, what do you expect from that group? Right. And you expect the next statement. You expect us to win because I'm out there. Yes. And how many times have we said that? Yeah, that doesn't matter. He can't I say guess that. The, this He's is the held same thing we had with Justin Fields, where Justin Fields said something. It was true and honest. Everyone jumped all over him and said he needed to know better. I'm not going to always be in the position of saying that athletes need to dumb themselves down for the moronic among us who want to start beefs about stuff when it's true and honest and obvious. We all have eyes. That's not a good starting lineup. There's so a expecting wild, Kevin no, no. Durant to soften it up for, for while everyone else gets to tell the truth, that's BS. You know, he doesn't have to soften it up, but if he doesn't have if he doesn't soften up, he has to deal with the consequences. That's called PR. You're well, well aware of that. The consequences on the opposite side are Kevin Durant 
continues to get blamed for a team that has been a failure for every reason. Blamed by who? This, but the people that are smart enough to know that this lineup isn't good enough aren't blaming Kevin Durant for it. Oh, so he now you're have, worried about the smart no, 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 people. No, no, no. Otherwise, we ways. have to acquiesce to the dumb ones. No, no. He, not at all. What I'm saying is that the smart people are smart enough to know that this lineup isn't carrying him. The dumb people are dumb enough not to know that this lineup isn't carrying him. So there's no win by saying what he's saying in this way. Because the disrespect comes to Joe Harris, who probably doesn't like reading this in the paper. The dumb people didn't need the reminder. The smart people didn't need the reminder. I, I just think we're projecting a lot onto these teammates who we are presuming dislike this. And I think in this situation, this was a very clear statement. And I do not think it caused offense within that locker room. Yeah, I mean, we completely disagree. You can be a part of Spain and Fitz Nation on the <laughs> Dr. Pepper Twitter feed. Tweet us at Spain and Fitz, at Sarah Spain, at Jason Fitz. ESPN Nation is presented by Dr. Pepper. It ain't college football season without the delicious taste of an ice-cold Dr. Pepper. The one fans deserve. All right, the World Cup is set to begin. We will get you ready for it with an expert next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Your small business keeps you on the go. Progressive Commercial Insurance keeps your policy within reach with an easy-to-use mobile app. Learn more at ProgressiveCommercial.com. As we get ready for the World Cup, we need expertise. We need help. We need a mind to give us everything to look for, and we're going to talk to one of those now. Brian Phillips, host of the 22 Goals podcast, senior staff writer at The Ringer, joins us now. And Brian, 22 Goals, a really cool idea for a podcast to basically tell the story of the World Cup through the process of 22 different significant goals let's start there how do you narrow that down to figure out which goals you're going to include well we narrow it down with a lot of uh you know a lot of heated email exchanges <laughs> with, uh, with my producers and me <laughs> over over a few weeks you know there were some choices that were obviously always going to make the list you can't do a world cup history podcast focused on goals without talking about diego maradona in 1986 without talking about, you know, Brazil in 19, excuse me, in 1970. But, um, but there were others that were more, you know, more on the, on the, on the edge. And we had to kind of narrow it down with just a lot of, uh, a lot of arguing. I want to move on, but I very quickly have important questions. Do you also do the Spanish and Portuguese versions? (laughs) You know, I have so much respect for the guys who are forced to read my script translated okay, so into no. Spanish and Portuguese, <laughs> not me. I was like, that would be so impressive if you just like, all, like all these years of reading your writing, if I didn't know you also were fluent in Spanish and Portuguese. Um, the other quick question is for you. Do you have to alternate throughout the podcast, depending on whom you're speaking with, uh, saying soccer versus football? Uh, you know, I just say soccer. I, early in my career, I would sometimes say football but I've just kind of embraced my Americanness. The word to me is soccer. I grew up saying soccer. Yeah. You know, people act like this is this big, like, cultural divide, but there's a long-running, very popular soccer television show in England called Soccer Saturday. <laughs> the word has been around. <laughs> uh, there's a great new ad with some of our faves like Julie Foudy in it, arguing whether it's uh, soccer or football with Peyton and, and uh, Beckham. So I think we're going to have the conversation for the billionth time here as the World Cup gets going. Let's talk about this World Cup because you had one of the episodes of 22 Goals is Landon Donovan talking about the history yes. of soccer in America. What did you get from your conversation with him? And what's a realistic way to view this World Cup team and what might be considered success in Qatar? 
Well, I think for me, the the main lessons of the Landon Donovan episode are just about this this moment in the history of American soccer when so much pent up emotion, maybe emotion that we didn't even fully know we were holding back, just kind of came flooding out when it's kind of finally happened for us in a big moment at the World Cup. You know, we we were not fancied in our in our group. We we were kind of on the ropes. We were uh, about to get knocked out, and then we scored this incredible goal in stoppage time to to advance. And it was kind of a moment when you know you know you knew for a long time that this moment was coming because there was this whole generation of American kids who grew up playing soccer while all of their dads were like listening to radio shows where like the last generation of TV pundits were telling them that soccer was un-American. And you knew that at some <laughs> point that generation of kids was going to kind of take over. To me, this was sort of the moment when that happened. Um, as far as the American team goes at this World Cup, I don't know. I think maybe maybe 2026 is going to be our year. <laughs> maybe we should look at this year as a, as, a, as a good learning experience. You know, we weren't even in the tournament four years ago. So just to be going is kind of is I'm, I'm trying to convince myself of this. <laughs> I, I've been doing all these interviews in which I tell people, you know, like weeks ago in which people would say, who do you think is going to win the World Cup? And I would always say, I think that we are going to win the World Cup. But now that we're kind of actually staring down the barrel of this thing, <laughs> it's, it's hard to look at Brazil and go, oh, no, we're going to win. Yeah. So, so right. then, Brian, stick there for a second. What should be viewed as success for this American team in this World Cup? You know, if we could, yeah, if we can make it out of the group, like I, I, which I think is a reasonable goal. Like Iran is not that strong. Wales is not that strong. Um, I want to, I want to say England is not that strong. <laughs> I feel like I'd be, I'd be tempting fate. <laughs> England, England is a strong team with a history of uh, underperforming against the United States at the World Cup. Let's, let's hope that continues. So yeah, I think if we can finish second in the group. Um, you know, make it to the first knockout round. I think that'd be a great result for these guys. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're talking to Brian Phillips, host of the 22 Goals podcast, senior staff writer at The Ringer. You can follow him at Brian Phillips. Also, get his book, Impossible Owls Essays. Uh, Brian, I've just enjoyed your writing across so many websites across the years, and I haven't read the book yet, but I imagine uh, it's a delight. Uh, everything I've read of yours has been a delight. Um, I, I want to ask how you're dealing with the World Cup in terms of cognitive dissonance, because, you know, we're already seeing the reports of Qatar changing their mind about, you know, we we're going to let beer in, but now we're putting Budweiser super far away. We're definitely <laughs> promising to treat LGBTQ plus people the right way. But I think a lot of people are still very fearful of that. Camera crews are already being, you know, threatened to have their cameras taken away just for covering the event that allegedly they've invited us to their country for. Uh, how are we supposed to process this and understand, as, I, I guess, both as journalists and fans, maybe those are different, how to deal with this World Cup? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that is the key question of of this World Cup for anyone who wants to watch it. Um, I think you just sort of have to decide, you know, where where your own boundaries are. Um, you can kind of tell how I have felt about the 2022 World Cup from the fact that I've spent the last like eight months making a podcast about every World Cup except this one. <laughs> like, I've just been uh, totally, you know, totally immersed in, like, 1958 because that was more fun than thinking about 2022. What I'm telling myself is that 
and this is, you know, this is one of the ideas behind this podcast and doing this show, which is about these moments of, you know, these kind of explosions of joy in soccer. What I'm telling myself is that there's something in the game that transcends what these people are trying to do to it. And it is kind of on us to say what that thing is and hold on to it and not let them just completely take it away. I mean, the, mm. the, by them, the administrators of FIFA, the, the last executive committee of FIFA, which was so terrible, and all of the autocrats and billionaires who are trying to use the game for sport washing. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm going to watch the World Cup, but I totally understand uh, anyone who says that they don't feel comfortable doing it. So, Brian, I'm going to give you the impossible task that we give so often to people that cover college basketball because most of us aren't paying attention until March Madness, just like many soccer fans that are casuals in America aren't paying attention <laughs> till now. So uh, make me smart. What's something I can go into the World Cup and say, I like this is a statement I'll make and the whole bar will think, oh, yeah, he's he's got this down. Yeah, I think that you can talk about how because this is the first World Cup ever to be played in the middle of the European soccer season where like a preponderance of the world's best players are having to interrupt their regular club season to go to the world cup. There's just a ton of like weird, ambiguous injury questions hanging over this thing. And it's making it really hard to kind of figure out what to expect. Like Senegal is a completely different team if Sadio Mane is healthy or if he's not healthy. And right now it sort of seems like we just don't know. Maybe he's healthy. Maybe he's going to miss the whole group stage. South Korea is the same way. If, uh, if Son's, you know, Son has a fractured eye socket from the club season, if, if that holds him back, like that's going to really, really hurt their chances. But we just, we just don't know. So it feels like a harder World Cup to get your mind around, even apart from the looming moral catastrophe of it. Um, just because the schedule is so so weird, and uh, people are coming into it from a different place than than we're used to. I love all of that, but I will skip all of the name pronunciations that are part of that because we all know I can barely read, Brian. Okay, everybody check out that's probably English. English is not always my friend. Uh, check out the Twenty Two Goals podcast. Read them on the Ringer. Follow them on Twitter at Brian Phillips. Brian, we really appreciate your expertise. Thanks for hanging out with us today. Guys, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80, ESPN Radio's presented by Progressive Insurance. If you've had conversations with me about documentaries of any kind, or you've ever asked me for suggestions, you have probably had me recommend that one of the greatest films I've ever seen, not just documentaries, but greatest films I've ever seen, is The Two Escobars. And if you have not seen it, write it down, put it in your phone, make yourself a reminder because it will blow your mind. And the guy coming on the show right now is one of the men responsible for that, in addition to Winning Time, Youngstown Boys, Playing for the Mob, Bad Boys, a bunch of other ESPN Films projects, and has a new one coming out. It's Andy Billman, War on the Diamond director. It's available on demand now. Andy, before we even get to War on the Diamond, I have to ask you, like, how often the two Escobars comes up still? How often you have people coming to you to talk about it? Because it, it truly is one of the greatest pieces of filmmaking I've ever seen. Well, thank you for that. Uh, that was an awesome. You're, man, Sarah Spain had my PR team. Uh, that was an <laughs> excellent read of films there. Um uh, no, thank the two Escobars is a special film. I remember 
when I first watched the cut and I was kind of told about it and they said, it's all in Spanish mainly. I'm like, Oh, really? And then I sat and watched it and I, and I thought it was so, so good. And I worked with the Zimbalist closely and I sent it to my brother who coaches soccer in Columbus. I'm like, look, just tell me I'm crazy. Is this really good? And he goes, this is <laughs> awesome. And, and from there, like it just took off and, to your point, there I'm very, very lucky. That film, The Book of Mannings, Winning Time, Bad Boys, uh, maybe a little film called Little Film Called Believe Land uh, yeah. gets brought up. And I'm very, I'm very lucky in my in this career to have these kind of things touch me. But The Two Escobars was an excellent, excellent film. Um, the Zimbos Brothers. I was just a little part in that cog, but it's truly remarkable that a film that mainly is spoken in Spanish translated and it's a fantastic watch and i'm not just saying as i did it it's really worth mm-hmm. the watch if you've never seen it he's listening it's really worth the time so as you rattle off so many amazing and impactful uh, documentaries that you've been a part of what was it about war on the, on the diamond that you wanted to be a part of well as a long time as miss spain knows because her nasty cubs did something That's to right. us in 16 That's right. so great, i i sit around moment. and sit around the fire and light a candle, a beacon of hope for the Indians, now Guardians. <laughs> and during the pandemic, I had a team out of L.A. reach out to me and said, well, we loved your film, Believe Land. We'd like you to do a film on the book, The Pitch to Killed. And The Pitch to Killed book is a story about Ray Chapman, a star player for the Indians, being killed by pitch by um, Yankee starter Carl Mace. And I said, look, I would love to do it, but I actually would like to do a deeper dive into why Cleveland fandom has this hatred towards the Yankees because it goes much deeper than this. And I was taught as a little kid uh, growing up, the Indians were not very good. And we were taught very early on to hate the Yankees. And there's a lot of reasons behind it. And it all started with 1920 behind um, Chapman and Mays. And I learned a lot about it while making Believe Land. And I don't think a lot of people know the story. And I think it's a very important story. And ironically, I don't think there's a lot of Clevelanders who know the story. So that's kind of the reason why Jason and I did the film. Yeah, I had never heard this story. I was not aware that there had been a player killed on the field. And you mentioned in some of the promotion for War on the Diamond that a couple big stories sort of always have overshadowed it. Babe Ruth doing what he did, the White Sox scandal Mm -hmm. being discovered, and those sort of have been enduring. Why do you think it is that that death has not been something that we all sort of know? Probably because Chapman died. Truthfully, I mean, it, it, it's so, it, it, I mean, in 1920, the Indians, for people don't know, they won the World Series. They beat the, they beat the Yankees of Babe Ruth. They beat, as uh, Sarah just said, the White Sox, and actually the Black Sox scandal ended in the end of the 1920 season. So the Indians came back after Chapman's death, won the pennant, then beat the Brooklyn Robins, now L.A. Dodgers, in the World Series. And I and after the this is the first ever World Series championship by the way for the Indians, um, and so when it happened after the celebration 1920 they had a parade, and the parade ended in dismay because people were so distraught because over the memory of Chapman dying. So mm. simply I think and it, and actually it's appropriate a man died, yeah. So it really isn't celebrated in Cleveland or anywhere else, and it's a very sad story. But I think it's an important story to tell. 
And it, again, there's a lot of parts to it that probably people don't know that hopefully we'll, they'll learn along the journey of watching the film. One of the things that was interesting to me pointed out is that uh, George Steinbrenner was denied the chance to own his own hometown team and instead ends up the owner of the Yankees. How much does it like, did even that portion of rivalry feed into what you saw about Steinbrenner and the way he ran things? Oh, Jason. If you don't think Clevelanders wonder what would happen if George Steinbrenner would have bought the, <laughs> the Indians in the 70s, you are crazy. <laughs> Did you see Major League? Oh, it was yeah. awful. Okay? It's too high. It's we too high. Want, I mean, come on. Only in Cleveland would you have a guy who's born in Bay Village, Ohio, who wants to buy the Indians, who gets rejected, only to buy the Yankees, vomit and mouth here. I mean, terrible, terrible stuff. Uh, yes, I actually wanted to make him believe land. It got brought up to me quite a bit. And in fairness, to, there's a lot of people who don't know this. There's a lot of season ticket holders in Cleveland who also have a tie to the Steinbrenners who still own tickets to the Yankees season tickets because of George. Mm. There's a lot of Steinbrenner lineage still in Cleveland. Steinbrenner donated a lot of money to Ohio State University. There's actually a building named after him. So there's a lot of ties to George. George grew up as a Browns fan, as an Indians fan. He actually owned the Cleveland Pipers. That's how he got into this whole thing. Gosh. So, yes, Jason, it was, it's a bit mysterious to us Clevelanders, but it's kind of the reason why I did the film. Is imagine imagine if LeBron hadn't happened. gone back to win. Just imagine if you had also oh, chased oh away the Akron oh product God. only oh, to win elsewhere. Uh, we're talking to Andy oh. Billman, War on the Diamond director. You can follow him at AJBill79. You know, I think a lot of players and fans have no idea – that this is part of the history of this rivalry. And they might even sort of shrug at the idea that it's part of its enduring legacy. But uh, my guess, and I haven't seen the film yet, is that what happens is what you described as being a child of being told you're supposed to hate this team. And so much of that going back to the death of this player and Steinbrenner and everything else. But um, how many fans do you think now would know about this if you asked, if you know, what are the reasons for the, for the Yankees and Guardians to be uh, enemies? Well, let's just, I'm going to give in two parts. One, no one's ever debating, and neither am I, Yankees, Red Sox, Cubs, Cardinals, Dodgers, Giants. These are wonderful top-cut rivalries, okay? What I'm saying here is there's Duke and Carolina, and then there's Carolina NC State, too. And this is Yankees, Indians, now Yankees, Guardians. And there's a lot of history, whether it's DiMaggio and Feller. Feller wrote a book, an autobiography, and one of the chapters was I Hate the Yankees, um, <laughs> 48-54. What happened in 97, 98 in the Miracle Bugs game of 2007, which changed um, a, a lot of people's opinions yeah, about, about that craziness. And the, you can still hear Yankees fans complaining about the Bugs. So there's a long history between these two teams. Um, to just put it frankly, I went to game two in the Bronx, and I rode the Metro North back to Connecticut. And one of my favorite things is there was one of these little yuppie uh, Yankee fans. It's such a Cleveland way that they had to start the game bunting. And I just remember sitting there laughing, going, that is so true. Because Cleveland in, the, in 1920 was a bunting, slap-hitting team. The Yankees, obviously, Babe Ruth was starting the long ball era. So I guess to put it in 100 years per perspective, the Indians in 1920 was the end of the dead ball era. And Yankees, with, J with Babe Ruth, started the long ball era starting 1921 and beyond. And it kind of came encapsulated to me this year with the Guardians and Yankees. Yankees were, I mean, my gosh, Judge, Rizzo. You remember Rizzo's fame. Uh, wonderful players who get the ball out. I do remember. And then, you know, for, I, I'm sure you do. 
Uh, and as for the Guardians, we were really a bunting team that slapped the ball, but, but is a lot of fun, and they won a lot of games. So to me as a filmmaker and journalist, it's interesting how 102 years later it's yeah. kind of gone back to what it started. Well, I imagine Yankees fans, Cleveland sports fans, and just fans of baseball history will love the film. You can find it. It's available on demand now, and also uh, you can go to the website, uh, which I believe is just thewaronthediamond.com. I hope I have that correct. Yep. Oh, just just waronthediamond.com. Waronthediamond.com is where you can find it. Andy, thanks so much for the time. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, guys. Take care. Director Andy Billman, you can follow him at AJBill79. Coming up, Deshaun Watson back practicing with the Browns. How will his teammates react? How will we react? We'll talk about it next. Spain and Fitz. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. When I was at the SPNW Summit a couple weeks ago, a producer from ESPN asked if I'd thought about how our show was going to cover Deshaun Watson's return and shared that some other employees around the company were struggling to figure out how to talk about it, how to work on projects and clips and stories involving Deshaun Watson. And uh, it kind of is something that's been on the back burner for a while as he's been suspended, but Deshaun Watson returned to practice today and the conversations will have to begin as to how we handle him as both um, someone mired in controversy and also a football player that's going to be on the field producing stats and reacting to the results of his games. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. Fitz, uh, first practice since August 30th, and uh, Deshaun did not speak today. I imagine when he is actually available to play, uh, he has two practice weeks leading into week 13 when he's eligible to return against the Texans on December 4th. I, I imagine they won't make him available to speak until then. In the meantime, as coach Kevin Stefanski didn't say much today, here's a little bit of what he didn't say. So it's not surprising Fitz, that he wouldn't have much to say. He will need to address this further uh, as we get closer to Deshaun's return, as will Deshaun and his teammates. But in the meantime, I think a lot of us in the media uh, are trying to figure out how to talk about it and at what point we need to transition into X's and O's and how often we need to be reminding ourselves of the completely ridiculous position that this team has put its staff, coaches, team, and fans in. The hardest part about all of this is that I'm not as confident that anybody will really say anything other than I'm just here to talk about football and we're going to move forward. And what's hard about this for Browns fans is y'all just want to win football games, right? Mm -hmm. And so for me covering this, I want to be able to talk about Deshaun Watson, the quarterback. Sure, of course. But I also think it's wildly disrespectful to everything that's gone on to just not acknowledge it. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's all really difficult. Every time right now I do any phone interview with anybody and I'm asked about, you know, the, the state of the Browns, I feel like I have to sort of qualify, hey, uh, for reasons, you know, we're going to separate this into two conversations, Deshaun right. the human being and Deshaun the quarterback. And I feel like I have to do that every stinking time. I don't know when that ends. I, I don't know the right way, you know, because the fact is when he steps back on the field and throws that first touchdown pass, every single network is going to break in to show it. Every single network is going to talk about that play and that moment. And in that moment, I don't know what else you do other than try to move forward because you have no choice. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a it's not necessary to move forward in the sense of abandoning necessary conversations and relevant discussions of the balance that's happening. Um, but clearly 
there will be plenty to talk about when it comes to how are you balancing reps for Jacoby Brissett for the next two weeks and prepping Watson for the rest. What are the expectations for Watson after what we saw in the preseason? What do we expect? How caught up on the playbook will he be just from working behind the scenes in whatever capacity he was allowed? And what will he get in the next two weeks that will prepare him for that first game back? Once he starts playing, how are fans reacting to him? How are, you know, there's so much there. And I think what uh, worries me, Fitz, is what tends to happen is people arbitrarily arbitrarily decide at this point, we're done talking about the two dozen plus sexual assault settlements. We're just done. He's playing football now. Only talk about the football. We don't have to do that. We can hold both of them and acknowledge both of them. Uh, part of the interesting conversation we're going to have with Deshaun is that I expect there to be a lot of rust. I mean, there were moments in the preseason he did not look good at all, right? And so when he comes out and has that rust, then you have a very real, hey, here's a reminder, he has rust because it's been a long time since he played meaningful football. Why has it been a long time since he's played mm-hmm. meaningful football? Because of this, right? Like, I think that all has to be explained as part of why we're seeing what we're seeing. I, I, It feels like it's a magical, mystical world you live in if the thought is that Deshaun's going to come in after this long of a break and just suddenly be the best of Deshaun that we've ever seen on the field. But either way, if he isn't, there's a real conversation about why. If he is, there's a real conversation about the fact that he's doing that even though he's had time off. And either way, the context of why he's had the time off seems like it matters. still matters. Yeah. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. You can hit us up on the Dr. Pepper Twitter feed at Spain and Fitz, at Sarah Spain, at Jason Fitz. I I do think um, there'll be plenty more to get into on this topic when Deshaun starts speaking. Um, I also think there's plenty to discuss as far as his regular return to facilities, teammates, etc. As we've seen in the past, there are certain topics that players feel comfortable speaking on. I even wrote a column about this. There were certainly plenty willing to speak on Colin Kaepernick's decision to kneel and what that meant to them and their family without even acknowledging the specifics around what Colin said he was kneeling for. And there have been almost none who have ever been willing to speak out about teammates who have been arrested and charged for domestic violence, rape, sexual assault, etc. It feels like we're going to probably get a lot more of the, you know, that's our teammate, We're all wanting the same thing. We got to move together and that there won't be a single person who's willing to speak out um, against the accusations and and speak out on behalf of the victims. Uh, But maybe we'll be pleasantly surprised. I'm not going to hold my breath. No, I I expect a a whole bunch of, you know, I can only speak to the Deshaun that I've met in the locker room. And this Mm -hmm. version of Deshaun's been nothing but a great great teammate. That's what everybody's going to stay right down the middle on all of it in my mind. Really quickly, let's hit on another quarterback who is in an entirely different situation, getting criticized for recent slips in his play. Josh Allen, as that elbow injury continues to heal, expected to play in what could be six feet of snow in Buffalo as they take on the aforementioned Browns. Marcus Spears was on NFL Live talking about uh, Josh Allen. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting analogy. I think it's as simple as... We know that Josh Allen can take over a game, but in recent situations, it feels like he's forcing it a bit, and that's getting the team in uh, in trouble. Uh, I don't have any doubt that he can adjust and that the team itself uh, will be fine, 
And maybe this adversity early on helps them get to the root issues of that stuff uh, before it's later in the season and it hurts more. I feel like if uh, of all the things in life that we say a lot on this show that could be tattooed on my forehead, both can be true. Like, I, I right. think this is just a reminder everybody yelling about Josh Allen right now. It is perfectly okay to say, hey, he's one of the most dynamic, incredible playmakers in the entire NFL, and what he does off schedule is amazing. It can also be true at the same time that he forced a throw he didn't need to force in overtime when there was a field goal to be there for the tie, and instead he ends up throwing it right to Peterson in the end zone, right? Like, it, it was a bad throw, and it was a bad mistake by somebody that was trying to make a play when he didn't need to. Like, those, both of those things can be true, and it doesn't matter as much in the regular season, but my God, if that's the finding moment we see in the AFC championship game, the chirping will get much, much louder mm-hmm. about Josh Allen. So I think well, it's fair. And I think we have to take into account the elbow injury, yep. the, the the prep that he didn't have before this, this week's game. Uh, what will it look like going forward? How much will the snow and potentially adverse uh, uh, conditions affect him? And that reminds me, at Sarah Spain, at Jason Fitz, uh, we want to ask, in case there is a six-foot snow game this Ooh. weekend, what the most ridiculous game, funny, wild, crazy game you've seen because of the conditions. Uh, so share that with us at Spain and Fitz, at Sarah Spain, at Jason Fitz. Coming up, what should the concern level be for Josh Allen and the Bills? We'll talk to a guest about it next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. 